Got a bunch of questions tonight. We're going to see what we can do to get through as many of them as possible. People sent in some really good ones too, so that was encouraging. Going to man it solo. And we got a bit of a special treat going on next week. Going to do something a little bit different with the stream. And uh, we're going to do a live... I think I mistakenly called it an e-scouting tutorial, and that's not really what it is because I think there are many better, you know, Mark Livesey, Treeline Pursuits, I think he's probably got a much better uh, bird grabber. Bird grabber and Matt, thank you very much for um, for chiming in with the... Uh, um, letting me know that we're on. Appreciate that in the YouTube room. Uh, I'm going to pick somebody's question at the end of the night too. I said when I posted this uh, on Saturday, I said I'd give away a shirt or a hat and I'll make it winner's choice. You can have whatever you want off the website. So at the end of the night, I will, um, I think I'm just going to try and, 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 and pick it with like a random, um, What's the word I'm looking for? A random number generator. Because I think me trying to like value judge these questions is just a bit ridiculous. Okay, so here we go. I got one more thing I got to open. This is fucking wild, man. So many different. Okay. So first things first that I want to get um, out of the way is... Um, 7B, the sheep, or sorry. All right, I need to get something else out of the way. So I'm currently um, just under 16 weeks out from my bodybuilding show. And I know it's the last thing in the world most of you give a shit about, and that's fine. I don't blame you. But I'm on like 100 to 150 grams of carbs a day right now, which is also something most of you don't give a shit about, nor should you. But for those of you who are curious... Um, the penalty that we as human beings pay for having such a large brain is that it's only capable of operating on one fuel source. And that one fuel source is glycogen. And when you starve your, your body of carbohydrates, one of the first thing that's, that goes is your, your brain. And so I'm dealing with like heavy duty brain fog right now. I'm dealing with like mild to moderate depression. I have a very short temper. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's all <laughs> kicking in. I'm just kind of hanging on today. I'm just going to be completely transparent with everybody. So if I'm all over the shop on this stream or, you know, I'm just letting you know now, this is the J you're getting tonight because this is all the J I got. So, well, if it, if it sucks and you don't tune in, man, I don't, I don't blame you, but, uh, I'm doing what I can. Ohana, much respect, my brother. I just bulked for three straight years and ended up putting on somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 60 pounds. And by the end of it, the last thing I wanted to do was, was eat another meal. So much love to you, brother. I, uh, one is not any easier than the other. Anytime you are trying to move your body from the place where your body wants to be, 
it is a very difficult process. So anyways, just wanted to get that get that out of the way because I'm I'm definitely struggling for words today and I'm really trying hard not to lose my temper with my wife and my kid and everything else because at the, at the end of the day I'm the one who voluntarily decided to do this thing. So I will not complain and I will not take it out on other people. And so don't don't confuse my sharing and my communication of my current state with complaining. I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this. And actually, if it wasn't for like the actual negative side effects, this is the most excited I've been in this whole process because this is the part that I've been like, reading about and listening about and seeing people do for the last 20 years that I've lifted is people doing these crazy preps and losing their minds. And that was the whole reason I did it. I want to see how deep I can go and I want to see how crazy I can get. So the fact that it's, we're hitting this wall now is only reinforcing the fact that this it's, it's all kicking in and I'm doing exactly what I'm what I'm supposed to do. I got to open up one quick thing and I hope this doesn't kill the live stream. Um, I just got to check my notes. Oh yeah. The haters, the new direction and the moose and caribou. Okay. Sorry if that, uh, I got to write one quick note. Okay. That's all we're going to talk about with, with bodybuilding tonight. Um, I do have some interesting bodybuilding stuff coming up in the near future, but for tonight, that's it. Because to be honest, it's kind of been on my mind all day and I don't want to waste any more time on it. We're here to talk about how to kill shit and survive in the backcountry. So let's focus on that. Now, first we got some business to take care of. Regulatory change in 7B. You guys have heard me beat this drum. You've seen everybody else beat this drum. You, you're probably sick and tired of hearing about it. I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. I want to see action. I'm not, I don't want to talk about it anymore, but I got to talk about it some more because today is the 21st and we have two days left of the comment period. And I'm just going to cut the shit with you all. I, this thing's going through. If you want my, my bet, my best guess, if you give me a hundred bucks and said, where are you laying your money? This thing's going through. To be honest with you, I think it already went through. In the emails that you read between the ministry and other various parties, this thing is written in past tense. But here's what's important. We need to get our voice on record so that we can stop future things like this from happening before they happen. And so that we have our voice on record so when we try and repeal this shit, they have a a realistic understanding of the quantity of individuals who oppose this action. So three main things that you can do. All of these links are in my bio. I made this super easy for everybody and I will put them in the show notes um, to this live stream. So go to howl.org. I think it's actually howl.org.something else, but just Google howl and org or go to the link in my DM. You look for the BC Peace Region and you can send 86 emails simultaneously to all 86 MLAs in British Columbia. And you can also get live phone calls happening with people and leave messages with up to five MLAs at a time. So go to Howell, 
take care of that action. Please follow them on Instagram. They need our support. They're doing really important work. Next, you go to Wild Sheep Society of BC's Act Now campaign. Go to my link or just Google it. And that is, again, going to let you send an, an assigned letter directly to the MLA in your particular riding based on your address. The MLA in your riding is the one who is legally responsible to deal with your claims. So you ask for time with them, they have to give it to you. You write them a letter, they have to respond. It's, it's, a, it's a course of, of legality. It's not a matter of if they, if they feel like it or if they deem it important enough. Um, so that's number two. And then number three, you go to the angling and hunting website directly through the province of British Columbia, and you can voice your opposition there by logging in with your BC ID. Other than the direct actions with the MLAs, none of these courses of action require you to be a BC resident. So please get your friends, your, your family, anyone who has texted me or DM'd me on Instagram and, and voluntarily done this, my friend south of the border, I deeply appreciate the support. This is a big, big, big deal for many, many reasons. And our very, you know, the very existence of our, you know, pastime, sport, hobby, whatever you want to call it, discipline of hunting, in some ways is at threat because of um, these regulatory changes. So that's all I'm going to say about it tonight. Please take your time. Please let your voice be heard. This is really important. Okay, there's number one business taken care of. Pretty sure I'm also mildly dehydrated today. Um, <clears throat> I had some other kind of negative stuff that I was going to get into. You know what? I'm not even going to bother because I don't even give a shit about the negative stuff. I'm going to leave it at this. I have worked very hard in my life to switch my mental framing from seeing people achieve and being, you know, jealous and envious to seeing people who are better than I am and being inspired by them and being motivated by them. So all I would say to you people out there is if there's people around there doing shit and you think it's better than what you're doing, be inspired by it and be uplifted by it. Be happy for them. Be grateful that they're enjoying success and use that as you know, energy and motivation to kind of up your own game and drive yourself to the next level. Because I think that was one of the major turning points in my life where I was finally, you know, I started to achieve what I consider to be real success in a bunch of different, in a bunch of different ways is when I started to be able to program myself that when I saw somebody achieve something that I was hoping to achieve, I would be genuinely happy for them and, and I would be inspired and be like, that guy's kicking ass. I'm going to kick even more ass. So that's all I'm going to say on that. Um, and then next week, so I've been hit up by a couple people about, you know, they're, they're planning hunts and they're a little bit unsure how to plan routes. I think one thing a lot of people don't comprehend who live in the States is that we don't have a trail system here like the one that exists in the States. 
I've hunted a lot in the States and it's like, you have a hard time getting two miles, let alone five, six, 10 miles from a trail, like a real hard time. And I'm not talking like some random trail that you may or may not find. I'm talking like a well-mapped, named, normally taken care of, upkept trail. They are everywhere in the States. Not the case in British Columbia. There are a few horse trails in the middle of nowhere, but unless you've spent some time in that particular area or you know someone who knows someone, maybe you stumble upon it, maybe you don't. There's no such thing as like big trailheads. And there are, are major hiking routes, don't get me wrong, like the West Coast Trail and all that shit. But I'm talking about, you know, the top half of our province that's basically just empty nothingness. It's all just bush. And a lot of people don't understand how to navigate in that bush and how to, and, and what is the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. So that's what I used to do for a living, literally. Um, as a forestry engineer, I would get dropped off and my, my job was to go into the forest, find the wood, get out on the other side and figure out how to put road networks through places that had never been logged before. Most of the work that I did was in, I'm probably get a bunch of hate for this, but people don't even know what the fuck they're talking about when they talk about old growth logging in BC. But most of the stuff that I did was, was old growth. Um, hang on one quick sec. So next week, instead of like a live Q and A, what I'm going to do is a live, I don't even know what to call it yet. Cause it's not e-scouting. Cause I don't want to, um, there are people that have far superior courses to me on e-scouting. I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, Mark Livesey, also known as Treeline Pursuits, has the whole online e-scouting, and I'm not going to build anything remotely as close to that good. What I can do is offer some particular insight into root construction. Like how do you actually plan a route in and a route out in in virgin country, in country that may or may not have trails. Like what type of topographical features are you looking for? Um, should you walk ridgelines? Should you not? How do you hug contour lines and avoid any unnecessary elevation changes? You know, how should you be walking through basins? All, all that kind of stuff. What can you tell based on the ortho imagery about the underlying vegetation and how can you use that information in order to make decisions about the most, you know, successful places to walk or the, the paths with least resistance. So what I will do next week is we're going to break open all the tools that I use, Google earth, fat maps, Onyx, go hunt, and we'll pick some random places and we'll just start planning routes. And I'll be like, okay, if I got dropped off here, this is how I would go in. This is how I, you know, if I was looking for glassing spots, these are the glassing spots I would pick. And then while we're doing that, I'll take live questions as we go. So, and I'll share how I store my GPS data, how I get information from my computer to my phone, and then how I use my phone when I'm out in the woods you know, in the most efficient way possible. And so that's what next week's live stream will be all about. So it might even be a little bit longer than normal, just because I think it's a pretty intense topic and it might take us a little while to get through it. But 
put that one on your radar. Um, okay, that's it for old business. Let's get it to these questions. There's some good ones. Number one, how do I track my calories? Do I use an app, etc.? cetera? Um, I don't because I primarily follow a bodybuilding style diet, which is the exact same foods every single day. So if I want to lose weight, I just slowly cut out some of my, some, you know, I, 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 I decrease the size of each of my meals a little bit at a time until I see the desired, you know, change in body composition. And if I want to put weight on, I increase the size of each of my meals a little bit at a time until I see the change in body composition that I'm looking for. I couldn't even really tell you what my calories are right now. I think if I was to guess, I'm probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 1800 calories a day. If you were going to track your calories, like you're going to do an if it fits your macros style thing, I recommend MyFitnessPal or just an Excel spreadsheet. I tend to prefer an Excel, Excel spreadsheet because it's easier for me um, because you can just control the way that it tracks everything. And I normally just do it at the beginning of each day um, and the, or I can update it from my phone if I want throughout the day. So yeah, MyFitnessPal or Excel. Question. Next question. Best gloves for the cold. I'm going to go ahead and recommend the Sitka Stormfront particularly for um, people with large hands. I've got big hands. They're not super meaty. Like It's not like my fingers are fat, but they're long. And so the problem is finding gloves that fit my hands aren't, aren't great. Um, yo, what up, RB? And Matt, I got your question. I'll get to it after this one. And if anybody else has any questions in the live, you can drop them in the YouTube chat box or throw them up in the um, Instagram live, and I should get them either way. Um, the Sitka Stormfront seemed to be the largest version of those, seemed to be about a quarter inch longer than the largest version of a similar glove that Outdoor Research and Black Diamond make. I'll, and I don't know the exact names of those other two gloves. I own the outdoor research ones. They're just as nice as a Sitka Stormfront. Personally, I don't care about having um, uh, camo gloves. So if, if you had smaller hands, I think that the outdoor research gloves would be a really good choice. I tend to like outdoor research um, apparel as a general rule. However, if you do have bigger hands, I would get the Sitka Stormfront. The other thing I like about the Sitka Stormfront is that they have a fleece liner and the Outdoor Research and the Black Diamond both have like a puffy insulation liner. And so if that gets wet, it's not going to provide the same thermal protection that a fleece liner will. And I'll give the same tip here that I gave the other day on Instagram when you go in with these heavy winter gloves, um, 
bring a backup liner that is quite thin. I buy these Merino liners from MEC that are like 12 bucks and they're super thin because walking around in moderate temperatures with the heavy liners, you're gonna sweat your gloves out. And then once those liners get wet, they're wet. You're gonna have a real hard time dry, drying them out. So for walking around and action-related activities, I keep the thin liners on. And then when I go to sit down in glass or have lunch or do something where I'm going to get cold, I put the thick liners on. And I'm able to mod uh, modulate and moderate temperature much more successfully that way. Um, Matt asks, what Kafaru bag and accessories do you use? What do you like, dislike about it? I have the duplex light frame, 26-inch. Uh, with a fulcrum, a guide lid, and depending on the setup, two to three medium pockets, and then a Kafaru gun bearer from when I'm on a rifle hunt. Now, the reason in my opinion that the fulcrum is the best all-around backpack ever made is that it's got a giant um, main compartment um, and then it has these two really big wing pockets. And the wing pockets are big enough that they can house my compact medium tripod from Outdoorsman's in one and my Zeiss Harpia 95 millimeter spotter in the other. And then I can still fit a bunch of shit in there. So when I'm on full out expedition mode, the entire main compartment is full. Both wing pockets are full. Guide lid is full. I have 9,200 cubic inches of space and it's phenomenal. Then once I get to camp and I'm just day hunting, I empty out the main compartment, cinch down all the straps, fold the wing pockets in, and I hunt out of the guide lid and the two wing pockets. So it's like the best compromise of an expedition pack with a day pack. I don't like meat shelves. I don't like the fact that this new fad in backpacks is like, Let's take a normal backpack and then lift it out 16 inches from your body, completely destroying your center of gravity and stuff all your meat in, in behind there. I get it, but I don't like it. So what I would prefer is a giant backpack that's not always full. And then when I kill, I take all my camp out, I load my meat in, in a garbage bag, in game bags, and then I load my camp in around the meat. And then the backpack, it has the proper physical dynamics that it was designed to have. And it's it doesn't have the majority of the weight floating 16 to 24 inches out from your back, basically ripping you backwards off the mountain the whole time you're hiking. If you're a meat shelf guy, go ahead, be a meat shelf guy, XO pack, Stone Glacier, have at it, don't care, fantastic. For me, I like that shit tall and tight and against as close to my body as it can possibly get. So that's why I run the Kafaru Fulcrum because I can put everything. I can put a dead animal, my entire camp, all my food, all my camera gear, all in one pack. Never, never had a problem. Um, and I've gone in for 13 days and I was able to take everything I needed. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what I like. Um, yeah, RB, you're right. And they, the thin liner gloves, they do weigh next to nothing. They're like two ounces. Now, um, my buddy over on the island asks, thoughts on buying 
raffle tickets that support the WSS versus building points in the States to hunt. You know what? That's a great question, man. And like some of those odds on those raffles are really, really good. Here's what I'll say. I think a moderate point building strategy in the States for like a decent elk and muley hunt every couple years is a pretty affordable thing. I think trying to save up and buy points for the next 25 years to get a sheep tag for most people is going to be a waste of money because a point creep, it's never going to happen. And I think that, you know, 50 to $200, depending on how many states you're going to chase sheep and goats in, you're probably right, man. You're probably better off buying raffle tickets. And I bet you, if you if you took 200 bucks a year that you were going to spend on sheep points in the States and bought a raffle ticket, you know, spent that 200 bucks on WSSBC raffle tickets every single year, I bet you, you run those two programs back to back and the raffle program comes out on top. I know a lot of dudes who've pulled hunts from raffles. I think it's another argument to go to Sheep Week, join things like the Less Than One Club, um, I think it's a great idea. And not only that, the thing about the States is at least the money that you're putting into conservation or the money that you're spending on your tags, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt is going directly into conservation. Legally, that money has to, or they they don't get access to the Pittman-Robertson money and the rest of the, the money that's kind of, they have to prove that any wild game related funding in their state has stayed directed towards wild game initiatives or they lose access to tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars of federal funding. So, um, yeah, the Gila's badass, man. Good luck on that. And good luck on the, on the Alberta moose as well. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a great idea, and I think everybody should buy a couple raffle tickets. I know I do, and I don't plan on winning, but I buy them from reputable sources like the WSSBC, Wildlife Federation, and other things like that, where I feel very confident that the money is going to go to the right sources. Um, okay, how much water for a backpack hunt? Well, this is kind not to be a dick, but it's a bit of a a poorly worded question because the answer is as much as possible. You want to be drinking as much water as possible all the time. Now, a, a better phrased question would be, what is your approach to carrying water on a backpack hunt? And what is what are some goals or what's the most efficient method? I tend to not like to carry... I tend to never carry more than three liters of water on me. Like if I don't know what's in front of me, if I'm going up a hill, if I'm, who knows, if I'm like, if I'm going into the unknown in any way, shape or form and I'm at a water source, I will fill up with three liters. That normally looks like two liters in my bladder and my backpack and one liter in a Nalgene. In addition to that, sorry, hang on. In addition to that, I also typically carry a six liter MSR drum light, which is like a, 
they used to have this old water bladder called a dromedary, and it was a really thick, rubberized, almost cordura material. And the caps were kind of shitty. Anyways, they came out with a newer version called a Dromlite. Weighs less. It doesn't look as sturdy, but I've never had one leak yet. And the cap is a better system. And so I have the ability to carry up to 18 liters, 19 if I fill my coffee thermos. Um, but if I don't know what's going on, I carry three. Because if I have to, I can reasonably stretch that to two full days. And if I don't need to, my habit tends to be to go through three liters of water per day if I'm conserving water. If I'm close to water, I'll go through five or six in the backcountry. But if I'm conserving water and I don't know where my next water is coming from, mild conservation gets me to three liters a day. Intense conservation gets me to one and a half per day. And then if, if so, so then the question gets, Once I, once I know what's going on, then you can plan more thoroughly. Like here's the deal. It all depends what you're doing. So like when you are elk hunting, it's not typically a concern because you're down lower and you're going like into canyons and out of canyons and into draws and out of draws. And it's like, you're going to be finding creeks unless you're like super dry parts of New Mexico and, and Arizona the odds are you're going to hit water. Now, where I've had the most problem in the past was like, for example, sheep hunting last year when you're, when you're doing like super high alpine stuff, because if there's not a glacier up above you, or if there's not some type of lake, and if you've had a particularly dry winter, like we did last year, um, it can be bad, man. And then you're in the case of I need to go get water. And when I need to go get water, I'm going to budget for three liters a day. So if I'm up there for three liters, I'm going to drop down. And if I'm up there for three days, I will drop down, get 10 liters and come back up. So my normal, like normal budget is three liters per day. And then I fluctuate. If I can, if I can get away with more and not run out, I do it. The other thing that I will say in the back country, especially in British Columbia, the instant you set up camp, you should be setting up some type of rain catchment device. Now, this could be a tarp. This could be your extra dry bags. This could be your um, anything like um, a, um, a pack rain cover. I've used all this stuff. And all if you just have like a slight kind of cupping basin-like shape, to it and you stick it in some bushes so that when it rains, it like will fall down in there. The other thing is like, don't underestimate the amount of water that collects on your tent. <clears throat> what we did last year and it worked really good. I have these little blue sponges, kitchen sponges that I carry with me in my, in my possibles pouch that when I wake up in the morning, if it, there's a lot of condensation in my tent, I rub the condensation off my tent and I dip it outside just to get the condensation the moisture from inside the tent to outside the tent. However, you can use that same blue kitchen sponge. And when you wake up in the morning, even if it hasn't rained and the outer layer of your tent is covered in dew, I will run that blue kitchen sponge over the entire surface area of my tent and I'll collect that water and I will squeeze it into a bladder. I don't give a shit because it's water, it's drinkable. I'm totally drinking that water. Um, and you'd be surprised 
how much water you can get that way. Me and Spencer did that a lot. Um, also, having your tents set up in a way so that you have like some type of like, um, again, you can use a dry bag, you can use your pack rain cover. And so when it rains, when the water falls off your tent, you're capturing that water somehow. Because when you're up in the high country, water is probably the single most important limiting factor. Um, and you don't want to have to drop down three, 4,000 feet to get water and, and come back up. Um, this is another one of those things that you like, you don't want to be influencing your decisions because you will make decisions that are not in the best interest of the hunt because it's going to require such a degree of effort. Um, and so if you can solve things like that or figure out ways to keep the, um, um, water levels in camp higher, then you're going to be free to respond to the hunt as the hunt dictates instead of having your hand forced by a lack of water. What's RB say here? Speaking of carrying water, mine is froze on a late season elk hunt overnight. Thinking about switching my Nalgene over to that GSI Microlate insulated bottle and still have the bladder too. I have that bottle. I think it's probably still going to freeze. There's not a whole lot you can do about freezing water other than keep that Nalgene in the foot of your sleeping bag. One of the things Barklow talks about a lot is if you're if if conserving fuel is not a concern, I'm going to boil some water before bed, let it cool down a little bit, pour that boiling water into your Nalgene, take that Nalgene wrap it in a t-shirt or your socks or whatever and stick it in the foot of your sleeping bag. Now, that's going to heat up your sleeping bag way more than you'd believe and that hot water is going to stay at least moderately lukewarm overnight and it's um, it, 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 it's not going to be frozen when you wake up the next morning. Um, other than that, just having at least a little water or snow that you can... Um, warm up in your jet boil or MSR, whatever stove you're bringing, and then pouring that into your Nalgene on top of the ice will help to melt it that way too. But um, things freezing is one of the worst things to deal with in the backcountry. Frozen boots, frozen water, it makes things um, really, really tough. Um, Hydropack. So I think, Matt, are you talking about the, uh, the bladder? Um, cause if so, I think that's the one I just upgraded to last year. It's kind of like a, like a charcoal covered bag with a black tube. Um, and, and it's actually super high quality. It's like nicer than the camelbacks, nicer than the platypus. Um, I was really, really impressed. I was kind of forced to buy it because a bunch of other shit was out of stock, but I was really impressed with that particular name brand of, of bladder. I forget what mine's called. I think it's. I should look it up. All right. We're cooking with gas now. Car brain is dissipating. <clears throat> um, <laughs> all right. Do you... Um, where do we start? Do we start on these ones or those ones? 
We'll start right here. Do you squat like a catcher or lean your back on a tree to dump in the woods? Um, yeah, I'm a squatter. I'm like a Japanese style squatter. I used to be a look for a log kind of guy, but I think if you've got the proper knee flexibility, uh, yeah, that's my jam, man. This is a very interesting question. So tips as a business analyst for personal and professional success. Here's one of the best pieces of advice advice I was ever given. And that was to treat your own business like you're a client. Because we tend to have a higher degree of professionalism and hold ourselves to a higher standard when we're dealing with clients than when we're dealing with ourselves. And we tend to let ourselves down a lot and not live up to the same standards. And so the same thing goes for your life as it does for your business. And that is treat it like it's a client and, and, and approach it with that same level of professionalism. Hold yourself to the same standards and keep that same level of, of like quality that you would if it was a client. Don't give you don't give yourself a pass on shit just because it's you and not a client and you don't have to worry about somebody getting pissed off at you. So I always try and keep that in mind. I probably have more on that topic, but that's all I got for now. Um, what is your favorite pose in this press? That's really tough. There's a couple that I'm really liking. I like the back double bicep. I like the front double bicep. I like a side chest. Those are probably my three favorite. And given my body type, they're the ones that I tend to be looking the best in. Um, bird grabber, my bro. Workout music. Are you a set playlist guy or a random play? One genre or multiple? Awesome question. And I am definitely not a random guy. I can't handle. I don't mind that when I'm driving around a little bit and it bounces from like some hip hop to some rock to some more folky stuff. I'm totally fine with that. Um, although I have such a diverse collection of music on my phone that there's also a lot of garbage. Like I'll have whole albums that I only like a couple songs on. So random kind of gets me in shit sometimes because it ends up being a bunch of garbage sometimes. But as far as it comes to a workout, very intentional with my um, music. It will either be a playlist or an album. And if it's a playlist, it will only be one genre. So I will have, and I'm using the term loosely, like I'll have a drum and bass playlist. Now, most of it will be really dark, heavy shit, but there will be, if you're really into drum and bass, there might be some liquid and some neurofunk. Um and you know there'd be like subgenres of drum and bass, but to the but to the average music listener, it would all just sound like the same type of music. Um, I'm really getting into techno for some reason right now, and I mean real techno. I don't mean techno in the sense of just a blanket term people used to describe any type of dance music. I mean like you know European kind of minimalist house. Um, that tends to be like really 
dark and kind of moody. And I don't know, I think it's just a reflection of where my head's at because I'm in prep. Um, but always intentional and normally the same genre the whole way through a workout. And it normally has to do with mood. Like if I'm a little depressed or if I'm like finding it, if I'm just not upbeat, I tend to play like rock music and sometimes like shit radio rock, like Three Days Grace and Nickelback. And I know it sounds embarrassing and I don't give a shit. I really like that stuff for the gym sometimes. But then if I'm going in there and I'm feeling like I'm gonna kill some motherfuckers, like I'm super amped for the gym, then it's more like um, Tool, um, Son of a Bitch, Chevelle, Seether, like Metallica, Pantera, like Hard Rock. And then the same thing, the mood really depends. I, I really like working out to the electronica stuff, drum and bass, techno, dubstep, but I got to be in the right mood for it. Again, I need to be kind of a bit happier. And if I'm not, then I'll like the music with the, with the lyrics. Um, you get to pick legalizing suppressors or handgun carry in Canada. Not even a moment's hesitation. It's handguns. It is infuriating to me that we live in the in the area of the world with probably the highest density of grizzly bears uh, and we're not allowed to carry handguns in the forest. Like that to me is an abomination. So, uh, and, and being primarily a bow hunter, there's a lot of hunting I would like to do that I get kind of nervous about because I don't, I think bear spray sucks. Um, and I'm not going to carry a rifle while I'm bow hunting. That's just stupid. Um, and I would love to be able to have uh, a sidearm on some of these more, you know, kind of sketchy hunts that I, that I go on. Funny side story. The, when I went and hunted Texas for Audad, this is going back maybe four years now, I get there. Okay, well, first, let's back up a little bit. So I got to fly into Midland. So first you fly into DFW and then you fly over to Midland. And Midland is kind of like the Fort Mac or a Fort Mac of Texas. Like it's just oil services as far as the eye can see. And um, very industrial town. You just kind of fly in and, and drive out as soon as you get there. And I had to drive about four hours Um I can't remember the place started with a T. What was it called? Terlingua. So I had to drive almost down to Terlingua, which is getting pretty close to the border with Chihuahua, like Mexico on the other side. And uh, it's maybe 10 o'clock at night and I'm going on a guided Audad hunt. And the guide, he's supposed to meet me. There's no cell service. So like the last cell service is like an hour away. And he's like, you're going to lose cell service. You're going to meet me underneath this telephone pole with this light on at the end of this dirt road. And I'm just like, what is this nonsense? What it felt like an episode of twin peaks or some shit. Um, oh, that's hilarious. You're near Midland. Um, yeah. So you're going to understand this handgun Texas story very, very well. So this guy finally comes out to meet me in this like big pedo van. And I was just like, and he's got this other dude with him. They're both kind of drunk. And I'm just like, what did I get myself into? And they're like, okay, follow us back. We got about a half an hour drive. And so we're driving down the road 
And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just swerves off into the ditch. I see this like white flash on the road and I swerve off into the ditch. And then he comes flying out of his van and comes storming past the driver's side of my vehicle, walking back up in the road. And I'm leaning over in the passenger seat, trying to get my headlamp to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden I hear crack, crack, crack. And it's like small sidearm gunfire. It's the middle of the night. It's like 11 or 12 pitch black. And, uh, I look out and I see him kicking this gigantic fucking snake <laughs> off into the, so he'd seen a big, the snakes come out onto the roads at night because the, the asphalt collects the heat from the day and then it radiates it back at night and the snakes like the warm pavement. And most dudes in Texas are not big fans of snakes. And so um, he pulled over, shot this snake with a sidearm and then gets back in the truck and he's like, we better get out of here. And I'm driving. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> like, this is, this place is crazy, but I'm kind of into it. And so we go, I get to where, um, uh, <laughs> so I get to where we're going. I get to my Airbnb. He's like, all right, meet me here in the morning. So I go to bed. I get up. I go to meet him in the morning and I'm going to hunt solo for the day. It was like a guided hunt, but more like an outfitted hunt. Like you come down, I'll show you some places to go. So I meet him in the morning and we're at the truck and we're at the bottom of these like mountains. And he's like, you're going to go up there for the day. You can go this far this way and that far that way. And anything you do between those two points, do whatever you want. Um, and he's like, do you got a gun? Because it was a, because it, because it was a bow hunt. And I'm like, no. He's like, you don't have a sidearm. I'm like, I do not have a sidearm. I'm like, I live in Canada. We're not even allowed. I could buy one, but it can't leave my house unless I'm going to the range. And he just takes out this gun. I don't even know what it was. And he just gives me this sidearm. And he's like, well, this is yours for the trip. You just hang on to it. And as a Canadian, you're not used to like walking around strapped. But in Texas, you go into 7-Eleven and dudes are strapped. Like, especially when you get into like those rural parts of Texas, like everybody carries all the time. And at first when you're there, you're like, this is insane. Like, why do you all need guns? But then after you're there for like a week or two, you're like, I kind of get this man. Like, because everybody's got a gun. No one needs a gun. If that makes any sense. Um, and in case it, like, I, I wasn't clear. I love Texas. Um, it was just like culture shock going from Canada to Texas. And that's my like sidearm in, in Texas story. Um, hang on one sec. Okay. No, we're still good. How are we for time? Okay. Awesome. Texas kicks ass, but that son of a bitch still never sent me my odd dad Euro. I shot an odd dad at 300 yards. Um, and he was supposed to drop my Euro off at the taxidermist. I even asked him, I'm like, do you want me to take this to the taxidermist? He's like, no, no problem, man. I'll drop it off. They'll give you a call and get your credit card information. It was like almost three years ago now or four years ago. Dude won't answer my calls. Son of a bitch. Anyways. And it's like an odd dad Euro. Like those things are a dime a dozen down there. Like odd dads are like rodents almost. Like they're everywhere. I even said to, I finally got him on the phone again a couple months ago. 
And I'm like, dude, I don't even care if it's mine. Just go shoot one and send me the horns. Like I just always wanted an Audad Euro because I just thought they looked so badass. Like it looks like a devil with the curved horns and the, anyways, it's really neither here nor there. I'll, I'll live without my, my Euro mount, but I think it's called Hunt Audad. And the guy's name is Chris Leland. Do not go hunt with that outfit. I had a good time and he was a nice enough guy, but he screwed me over on my mount. All right, up next, how do we get government on board with prescribed burning? I don't know, man. I've been asking myself some very deep questions about government lately. I am not like an overly activist-minded individual, probably to the detriment like I probably have been too apathetic most of my life. Like I probably should have been more involved earlier on. But I've always just been like only really cared about the shit that was going on in my life. And then in the last two years, between the rights that they stole from us because of this fucking flu to, you know, Trudeau taking away our guns to then stealing people's uh, GoFundMe money and enacting emergency acts and basically being the biggest pussy on the planet. Like I've lost so much faith and now the provincial government taking away hunting rights in, in such a blatant like negotiating tactic of a strategy I used to feel very strongly that we lived in like one of the freest, best countries in the world. And, you know, a lot of it is window dressing, man. I thought we had a lot more power than we did. But when you, and I don't, again, I don't want to be like so pro America because I'm not American, I'm Canadian and you should be proud of where you come from. And I, and I am, but you can see now why the way that they constructed the government or why they constructed the government the way they did in the United States and why, you know, certain wildlife commissions only have certain powers and why certain things need to be done by referendum and they can't just be... Now, it's not all like that. Like, look at Washington. They just lost their bear hunt because five dudes wanted it and four didn't. And sorry, four, five dudes didn't want it and four did. And no matter what the public feels like in Washington, that shit is gone. So I'm not saying that system is perfect, but in this digital era with blockchain chain transparency and the ability to basically infinitely meet and converse with, um, you know, as many people people as you can at once, why we don't have a more sophisticated form of government. Like this whole system of like MLAs and like representing your voice, like you could literally vote on all this stuff in a, in a, in a second with your phone and everybody, I don't need somebody to be my voice. I'm my voice. Let me tell you what I think. I don't want some asshole who's like got a bunch of other influences or believes things I don't believe I'm supposed to have faith with him to represent me. So anyways, I'm going on a huge tangent here, but I think 
The answer, the proper question is not, how do we get government on board with prescribed burning? It's how do we replace the currently broken system with a system that actually represents what we believe and what we want in our country and our province from our wildlife and our political system and our financial system. And, you know, I'm not even going to touch inflation and this quantitative easing that's taken place over the last few years and how irresponsible it's been. And if you think gas prices are high now and you think things are creeping up now, just wait, man, because like seven, eight, nine, 10% inflation is like back to the 80s when you've got a 15% mortgage and it like it gets real bad real fast. So hang on because there's no free lunch. And the way people have been printing money for the last five years is insanity. And it will come back to bite us in the ass at some point. All right. Well, let's let's bang bang through a, a few quick ones here and then we'll we'll wrap it up. We're already an hour deep. So steps the average hunter can take to increase hunting opportunities and conservation. Be a good ambassador, man. Represent hunting. Let me let let me let you in on a little secret. And it's not a secret at all. Less than 5% of North America hunts. So let's say by some freak miracle, we're able to double the amount of hunters in the next year, which would be insane. We've basically been in a holding pattern with hunting numbers for almost the last 20 years. There's been, you know, two, three year periods where we trended down and two, three year periods where we trended up. But basically as a function of percentage of the entire population, they haven't really moved that much. So let's say some freak occurrence occurs and we double the hunter numbers. So what? So now we're 10%. We're still nowhere close to a majority. We're still nowhere close to actually having real power at the polls or a real powerful voice. But let me tell you this. I actually did a very large project for this for this not-for-profit um, hunting um, conservation group. Only about 5 to 10% of the population is evangelically opposed to hunting. So let's say we've got five or 10% down here at the bottom that are super pro hunting. And we got five or 10% up here at the top that are super anti hunting. And everybody else exists along a spectrum. The way that we survive as hunters and the way that we get our voices heard is not by creating more hunters because we're never going to get enough hunters. It's by taking the moderates in the middle and we refer to these people as non-hunting outdoor enthusiasts. These are people who share a desire for our way of life. They like wild things in wild places and they enjoy isolation and they want vast tracts of untouched land and they want, you know, the ability for adventure and not novelty and they enjoy getting out of the city. We need those people to get on board with our way of life. Like I'm not a rock climber, but I want to make sure that people have places to go rock climbing. I'm not a mountain biker, but I want people to be able to have places to go mountain biking. I want the rock climbers and the mountain bikers to feel, and not just them, I'm just using them as an example, to feel the same way about hunting. I may not be a hunter, but I get those people 
Those are good people. They have the same values I do. They care about the same things I do. I want to make sure that people don't infringe upon their rights and they get to pursue their passion and their hobby and their discipline. And when we can successfully access those moderates, those people, that 40 to 50% in the middle, now we're not 5%. Now we're not 10%. Now we're 60%. Now we have a voice. Now we're a majority. Now we have allies on our side. And in my opinion, that's the route forward. That's that's how we get people to understand who we are and what's important to us. And how we do that is by setting an example. It, you gotta be you got to be somebody that can be understood and you have to carry yourself. And, you know, it's the one reason I make the hunting films that I do. I want people to understand why I do what I do. And I want people to be able to like take a trip in my mind and see what it is about hunting that is so special to me. And so I, I use the medium that I can best use to, to communicate and I try and express myself to those people so they can see it's not this like drunk redneck drinking beer in the back of a truck, even though I, that's like some myth. I don't even know who those guys are. It's kind of like the African trophy hunter. That's a bit of a myth too, based on these like weird archetypes that don't even actually exist. Um, most of the dudes I know who are into African hunting give care way more about conservation and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to ensure you know, the livelihood of things like rhinos and giraffes and all kinds of other weird shit. It's not my cup of tea, but so anyways, I'm going off on a huge rant here. That really is, you know, and, and, and I got, you know, Arby's chiming in here from, the, from the room and, you know, have them try a venison meal. It's one of the reasons I make so many, so much sausage in my mind. Sausage is the perfect wild game because anyone can cook it and it always tastes delicious. When you give people roasts and steaks, if they don't know what they're doing, it can get like pretty shitty pretty quick. And, and so, you know, a dozen so frozen sausages, people love it. And I get so many texts like, holy shit, that was amazing. And now they have, there's this positive attachment for them between hunting and meat and their life and this guy that gave them a gift and the whole circle is kind of complete. So treating people with respect at the trailheads, posting pictures and and captions on insights and and on on Instagram that are respectful and reflect hunting in the in the way it is using ethics while you're out in the field and not trying to get away with shit that you wouldn't want to be seen doing communicating with respect with other people and and being aware that they have rights too. So it, you know sometimes you got to compromise a little bit and give a little to get a little but like in my opinion, that's the best thing we can do as a group moving forward in order to ensure our livelihood, you know, continues. Okay, two more quick ones, and then we're gonna we're gonna get out of here. Camera gear and rain. What? Um, okay, quick question. If you share cooked meat with someone. Will you always tell them what it is before letting them eat it or do you let them try it first and then ask them if they liked it? That all depends on the person. I, I Personally, I've never done that. Um, I also eat a lot of bear and bear has trichinosis. You don't have to worry about it if you cook it right, but I feel an ethical obligation to tell a person they're about to eat bear. So if they don't want to eat it, they don't have to eat it. Um, and I, 
95% of the time I've cooked people wild game, they've liked it, but I try and cook it in ways that are going to be, um, palatable to a non hunter. Hang on one sec. Okay. Um, yes. So that's what I, I always, I always tell, I always tell people first. Um, and I find that's the best course of action, but if somebody was like really adventurous and then I had a few different things. It might be kind of fun just to see if they liked it or not. But no, as a general rule, I don't. I don't do that. Um, camera gear and rain. What to do and what not to do. Um, so when I film, I carry one high-end mirrorless camera, a Sony Alpha 1, and I carry two GoPros. When I get into sketchy weather, my expensive camera goes away and I just record everything on the GoPros. And then I don't have to worry about anything. That being said, I do have a couple of waterproof sleeves that I can put over my camera. The problem is I'm so like energetic and like I'm going through bush and climbing and things are falling and like, I don't really trust it. So what happens is I find myself constantly rechecking it. And then that I just get worried and it ruins it for me. So if it's going to be any more than just like a light spitting, I, I stop and I put all my camera gear in my backpack, except for the two GoPros. And I normally have a, I can do a whole video on this, but I have a mountain bike handle GoPro attachment that I've modified to fit on my trekking pole. And then I have another GoPro mounted to a Joby gorilla pod, which is like one of those flexible tripods that you can wrap around shit or just use to stand up. And I spike it through my bino harness. So if I want to do like the walk and talk thing, I've got the tripod or I can set things up. And anyways, I still have two cameras left so I can capture a variety of, of angles. And I've had those things through hell and back and I've never had a problem with them. Um, Thomas says, when you're making a story for your hunting videos, do you have a plan before filming or do you put together the story after filming? Um, I put together, for the most part, I let the story unfold and then try to make sense of it when I get home. Now, there might be like a main arc I've decided on beforehand, like for instance, my elk video from 2019 in New Mexico, I'd been on seven unsuccessful elk hunts. I'd been hunting elk for five years. I had never killed an elk. And then I drew this really crazy public land tag down in New Mexico. So there was a couple elements of the story, like this constant failure that I was battling that kind of ran through that story. And then the travel, it was a 36 hour drive. That's with naps. I just went straight and stopped every now and then and slept for a little bit. It took me 36 straight hours to get down to New Mexico. So kind of the intensity of that travel was another theme. So there tends to be, you know, like for example, with my sheep hunt this year, it's 14 days. I'll be solo for the whole thing. So one of the themes of that story is going to be the isolation and me trying to tell the story of what it's like to be by yourself for that long doing something as intense as a sheep hunt. But other than that, I just let shit happen. Kind of, it, it's really funny, but some of the best um, 
filmmaking advice I ever got came from Gary V. And he has this saying, document, don't create. And I was at a real crossroads because I kept trying to make films. And with films, you kind of need like storyboards and scripts and like screenplays. And you need to know what's going to happen. You got to have all the perfect shots. And like, I just, it just wasn't, I didn't know how to do those things. I didn't know what was going on. But when he shared this philosophy, document, don't create. Creating is about planning and building something. And you know what it's going to look like at the end before you start. Documenting is just do what you're going to do and capture it all on film. And as soon as that switch flicked in my head, everything became super easy. And that's why I think my films have a slightly different, I don't do the 24 minute highlight reel films that most people do on YouTube. Most of my hunts are close to an hour long or there'll be four or five episodes. And there's a lot of, one could argue, monotonous, boring shit in some of those films. But that's because what I'm trying to do is communicate what it's actually like to be there. I'm not trying to give you a highlight reel of the most interesting things that happened over 14 days by myself. I'm trying to share what it actually feels like to be there for 14 days by yourself. And in some ways, I'm shooting myself in the foot because what I'm doing is not as attractive to as wide of an audience as, you know, the, 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 the like the fancier, flashier 22 minute videos are. But here's the thing. I don't fucking care. I, I don't need Mindful Hunter to take off to feed my kid. And I don't really plan on ever getting rich and famous. I want to make shit that's like interesting and unique and communicates things in an interesting and unique way that I feel is like my own and it's influenced by other people and other things, but it's like my voice. And so that's why I make the films the way I do. And I probably get less viewers because of them and that, you know, so be it. Um, but yeah, so a very interesting question. I, no, I don't, I don't have a preconceived notion for the whole film, but there will be these like themes that I will have decided upon. You know, I'm taking my old man and my brother on a caribou hunt. If, you know, <laughs> we're blessed with caribou tags this year, that's a topic for another conversation. And in that one, there will definitely be themes about family and themes about reunion and themes about your loved ones and spending time together and getting away together. But I don't know what the story is going to be. I don't know how it'll unfold. I don't know what we're going to say or where we're going to go exactly, but I'll know. Yeah. Some of those like undercurrents that will carry me or carry the film through. That's the other reason why I, I rarely refer to my stuff as hunting films. I sometimes I will slip it. I almost call them more like hunting vlogs because they're more, they're more about capturing the story than they are this like prettily packaged um, film. So anyways, long drawn out answer. Hope that that got to what you were looking for. Um, I think that's it. Any last questions? We're going to sign off here in a couple minutes. Um, I'll do like a little wrap up. And if anybody has any last ones, you can throw it in the chat. Um, as always, please take a moment to engage with the platform. 
like, comment, share, subscribe. I greatly appreciate it. If you want any merch, go to um, mindfulhunter.com slash merch and pick up a shirt. Here's what we're going to do. How many questions do we have come in this week? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 11, 11 questions. So I'm going to do a, I'm going to open up my, I'm going to just go to a random number generator. And we're going to go one to 11. And basically what I'm going to do is, you know, one is going to be the bottom left on my screen and 11 is going to be the top right. And I'm just going to count up to whatever number it generates. And that person is going to win some merch. So number four. So one, two, three, four. So more Monty, more problems. I will send you a DM after this and you can go to the website and pick up um, whatever you, whatever you want. Um, I think that's it. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. I, um, yeah, I, I do. I like to document the failure. I think it's is as, as important as documenting the success. I don't want to do any more philosophical rants tonight, so I'll keep this one short, but I think people run from failure a little bit too much. Failure is not death. Failure is ego death. And I hate failing with a white hot passion, but when it happens, I, I man up or woman up if you're a woman and I embrace it. Um, but it's important to acknowledge that you failed. And when you set forth a goal and you don't achieve the goal, it is a failure, but it's okay. But I just don't understand why people, oh, I didn't really fail. It was a learning lesson. No, you failed. You wanted to do X. You did not do X. Eh, failed. Now the important question becomes why? And after that, what can I do about it so that it doesn't happen again? But if you run away from the failure and try and hide it in a lesson learned, then you don't force yourself to go through that process of self-awareness and drive down to the root cause of the failure and come back bigger and better and stronger next time. Quick question for Thomas. No. You do not have to drive to Wyoming or Montana or anywhere else to build points and to buy licenses. You can do everything you need to do online from the safety and security of your own home. Um, no problem. Super easy. Thanks, bro. All right, everybody. That's it. Well, we started out a little bit shaky, but we ended on a strong note. So as always, thanks for tuning in. And remember, Next week is going to be the root planning webinar, and we're going to break out all the fancy tools and do some cool shit. So we'll see you then. As always, thanks for tuning in.